The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Drastic shakeups in our routines can be good for us, right? Think of a long vacation or a sabbatical. But routine is also something that keeps us moored, it keeps us grounded. And think about the pandemic everyone was forced to change habits, our routines ground to a halt or changed overnight. It was the end of the wash, sleep, repeat that many of us had been living off of, and it was detrimental for a lot of our mental health. In the case of Natasha Bowman, someone who describes herself before the pandemic as Natasha Bowman, the goal conqueror, The early days of this traumatic period actually unearthed something she'd never really understood, that she had bipolar disorder. Before Natasha's diagnosis, she had ticked off so many boxes, speaking at TEDx, she'd started a business and become an HR executive. Then, after a series of events in 2020, which we'll talk about, Bowman was diagnosed at age 42. Since then, she's learned how to manage her mental struggles and also integrate how she viewed herself before as an intense overachiever with what she wants from life now. Bowman is the author of the book Crazy AF, How to Go from Being Burnt Out, Unmotivated, and Unhappy to Reclaiming Your Mental Health at Work. Here's our conversation. You have the kind of list of accolades that many people I talk to have, right? You're incredibly impressive. You're hugely successful. You're highly educated. You're dynamic. You appear to be able to handle a lot at once. (laughs) I like that appear word because that's key there. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So you've written, you used to shoo people away who complimented you for these things because they would say, and you also have kids? What? And you would say, well, I just, I, I don't know. I have some unexplained superpower. Mm-hmm. Why was that the answer that you went to? Well, you know, I couldn't explain because it was such outside of the stereotype or the norm, especially for females mm-hmm. to have a thriving career and to also have a family. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we believe we have to sacrifice one for the other. So I chew that away because men have been doing that for years now. And I threw it away for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it helps to perpetuate the stereotype or assumption that women can't have careers and a family. Two, I also have a support system at home that has helped me with my household duties and familial duties. I need a support system. I don't come home and have to do laundry and dishes and things <laughs> like that. So I want to be transparent in that so that people don't think, because I understand that struggle. And I understand that things related to outside of work has become barriers, especially for women in the workplace, that I have not had to face. I definitely have faced barriers 
within the workplace. But some of those barriers have been removed from me outside of the workplace. So that's mm-hmm. why I don't accept the superpower because I think that there were people that definitely were balancing the two. And I want to give them more credence than actually what I would give myself. Mm, that's interesting. Were you always really, really passionate about your work? Were you ambitious? Were you an ambitious kid? Absolutely. So I had what you would call a pageant mom. um, And I was entered into my first pageant at like two or three years old. And while the other toddlers, from what I hear, you know, were very shy about going on the stage and wanted to hide behind their mothers, I was like, no, you stay here. I'm going on the stage. And (laughs) I have had that same kind of aspect to life since that day where, you know, I, I love being able to spread a message, having an audience and maximizing my potential along with being in pageants as a child. I was born with congenial heart disease. So either I was somewhere shining and performing or I was in a hospital bed. And at 11 years old, I had open heart surgery after being told I had six months to live. And so after that experience of having open heart surgery at 11, that really kind of taught me at a young age to live life, you know, for its fullest, to appreciate Mm -hmm. every day. And that's exactly what I tried to do over the course of the next few decades since going through that early kind of traumatic experience. I can imagine as a mom today, your mother, who clearly prized you entering Uh you into pageants Uh and giving you all that, Uh what she must have felt when her baby was so sick and how that affected you as you were growing up. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, it was going from kind of one extreme to the other. And I I later found out in life that I believe that my mother probably had a a mental health condition uh, because she thrived from the attention. Mm. And whether it was from me being on a stage and getting that type of attention or me being in a hospital bed, she really enjoyed the attention that came from both of those. And so how that shaped me as an adult and continuing the level of ambition that I had was that I needed to always be receiving this overwhelming amount of attention um, Mm. because that was what was brought to me as a child. And you've also called yourself Natasha Bowman, the goal conqueror. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't. Yeah, that's a quote in an article. I I think you were being tongue in cheek. I don't think it was like a serious thing. I think you were being sort of like sarcastic. (laughs) Yes, but yes, I I did. You know, I wake up very much every day with purpose and intent. I love checking off goals no matter what. And I am a goal conqueror and I don't stop until I reach certain goals. And it wasn't until recently that I have been okay with pivoting from certain goals. You know, if I was having trouble achieving them or if it was causing too much stress or anxiety to reach certain goals, I've recently become okay with, okay, maybe that is not a goal that I need to achieve, or maybe there's a different goal, you know, that I need to achieve. And so before the COVID pandemic, especially, I was, I mean, it was just checking off one goal after another, and it was never enough for me. It was constantly, you know, oh, I've achieved this. That's enough. I'm done with a lot. You know, I've done everything I could do. It was always adding on to the list, and it was never enough. And after the pandemic and going through a mental health crisis, I look at that differently now. Mm-hmm. 
I realized that my goals, which is what I really wrapped my identity into, I was more than that. You know, my identity was more than those professional goals. And that's what they were. They were professional goals. They weren't personal goals. They weren't self goals. It was all about reaching a professional accomplishment. Am I still goal driven? Yes. Mm. But the list of that goals and what I'm trying to accomplish looks very, very differently now. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, obviously, the pandemic was rough on most of us, on many of us, but you had a pretty quick and very drastic issue uh-huh. emerge. Uh-huh. I'd love you to, if it's okay, take us back there and, and tell us about your experience. Yes. Again, during the pandemic, I was busting all those goals. Um, you know, I had... What were you doing for work at the time? So, yes. Yeah, so, uh, a, a few things. So, <laughs> again, I could work four or five jobs at a time. So, I had published my first book. I had been speaking globally, had done a TED Talk. I had a consulting firm that I had started that was doing very, very well. And on top of that, I was also the chief human resources officer at a behavior health hospital. Uh, wow. So, that was just kind of my life at that time. And then when the pandemic happened, all of those things really came to a pulse. It was nothing for me to do. All my speaking engagements were canceled. My projects were put on pause. And even being at the head of HR at a behavioral health hospital, there really wasn't much for HR professionals to do during that time. People kind of stopped, you know, harassing each other when this up and global <laughs> pandemic is happening. So my brain at that point was like going back to that identity who am I? You know, I, I'm not uh, chasing this professional success. I don't have any goals right now. And like everyone else was enjoying this moment of pause and spending time with their family, et cetera, et cetera. I did not enjoy that. And so mm. my brain went to places that it had never gone before. I was searching for an identity that was completely outside of the person that I knew or that anybody else knew. And even after the murder of George Floyd, when a lot of my work picked back up because organizations want to talk about race and racism at work, I still found myself in this very strange place mentally Mm. until one day a light bulb came on just out of nowhere and I started to feel myself again. But then I was in a place of what was that? Who was I? You know, and I called some hurt and pain in the process of finding this new identity that sent me into a place of guilt and shame. And so then I went into a depressive state. And in January of 2021, I had a suicide attempt. I decided I no longer wanted to be on this earth anymore. And after that suicide attempt, I spent uh, several days in a mental health facility. Mm-hmm. And while I was admitted into that mental health facility, with, by the way, ended up being the sister facility of the one that I was the head of HR of with the same leadership team. Yeah, same leadership team and everything. So when people ask me like, oh, how do you tell your boss? I'm like, I didn't have a choice. They just knew, you know. But it was during that hospitalization that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Mm. You mentioned you you caused some shame and that that sort of made your spiral worse. Yes, it did. It did. Because I went into reclusion and I'm very active on LinkedIn, especially on a daily basis. I no longer wanted to be on LinkedIn anymore. I was just trying to hide myself. I thought, oh, if people see me, they're going to know I was diagnosed with a mental illness. And what is this going to mean for my credibility and my capability and the way that I'm seen? Am I going to be able to run a business deal, et cetera, et cetera? 
So I continued to spiral. But when I shared my concerns with my mental health provider, he did a really good job. He, he brought up something interesting to me, which was, Natasha, you probably have had bipolar disorder for the past 20 something years. And mm-hmm. you've been able to thrive and check off all these professional goals. Just because you have a diagnosis now does not make it any different. You can do exactly what you were doing after your diagnosis than what you were doing before your diagnosis. That was a light bulb moment for me. And when I heard that and started to research mental health conditions and found Mm -hmm. out that so many people, one in five, you know the numbers, have been diagnosed, Mm -hmm. including yourself, if I'm not mistaken, you've been diagnosed with anxiety. And bipolar too. Yep. And bipolar disorder. I did not know that. So, yes. So, you know, we're able to thrive, you know. And so that really helped me to really turn around. And to look at my mental health condition in a different light and say, you know what? A lot of people who have been diagnosed with mental health conditions have superpowers and they have been making significant differences in the world. Why can't I? And that's when I pivoted my work to becoming a mental health advocate and really focusing on the workplace. Mm -hmm. um, Because when I made my diagnosis public, I think it was in November of 21, And that post, to my surprise, went viral. But many people were saying, me too. It was almost like another me too Mm -hmm. moment. And people, you know, were telling me about, especially in my direct messages, about what they had experienced, what their family members had experienced. But the key thing that was said was, I wish I could be as transparent and vulnerable as you are. Mm-hmm. but I'm afraid of what my job is going to say on this platform. So that's really where I started to focus on workplace mental health because I wanted people to feel just like I did as if you know they could share their experiences with being diagnosed with a mental health condition and not have the fear that they would suffer some sort of repercussion. But they do suffer repercussions. They do. And so did I. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll be honest, uh, and I talk about this in the book for the first time, because many people didn't know that I was a chief human resources officer at a behavioral health institute. And I thought, oh, hey, I work for Behavioral Health Institute. My boss is a psychiatrist and they know about bipolar disorder and their mission is to stop the stigma. And so in my head, I, you know, really thought that I was going to walk back into this stigma free work environment. And I didn't. (laughs) And some of the things that happened to me upon my return were just absolutely shocking and appalling to the point that I left. And so, again, I didn't use that experience as a negative and to perpetuate, hey, you know, keep your mental health quiet and silent. But here are some things that happened to me that I think that managers could do better in supporting people. And there were some things about stigma that were really revealed that I didn't realize, you know, even at that point. So I've used that experience to help organizations to provide a better workplace for those with mental health conditions. I mean, you must have been so angry because you're working in a place that's supposed to be about healing and treatment and uh-huh. and understanding. And that was not your experience, it sounds like. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And what I realized, yeah, they were about healing and treatment and understanding for their patients. Mm-hmm. 
but they were not for their employees. And it's two separate things. There's a playbook, right? When you go to medical school, they tell you exactly what to do in terms of treating your patients. They do not tell you in medical school what to do in terms of how to deal with your employees who have a mental health condition. And that's two separate things. And and that's what I realized. Assumption for me to think they would be the same thing, but it wasn't. And it really, really was a very horrible time because I was considered a very, very high performer and achiever before going out on my mental health crisis. And when returning, just one example of the stigma that I faced was the person that was filling in for me at the time that I was off. She never went away. We were like partners because they didn't trust me to to do my job by myself again. Yeah. Did you bring that up? Well, it took me a while. You know, I'm like, okay, what's happening? And then I noticed that we would be on health system calls. And when they would refer to my hospital, they referred to the both of us. And, you know, it was just very strange. And it it, honestly, and this is my fault, because again, we get very silent about these things. But it took me a while to go to my boss and the chief people officer to say, hey, what's going on? Why is this person still here? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they said, oh, well, she's going to be helping with this, this, and this. And I'm like, but I was doing that, that, and that before. Never had a complaint. I was succeeding. Why do you think I need help now? And they really didn't have an answer, but I think it was just an assumption that, oh, you're coming back from this. So obviously you need help. I think they were coming from a good place, mm-hmm. but that wasn't the support I needed. Actually, what would have supported me better was for me to be able to just, just jump right back into it and, you know, demonstrate to myself and others that I'm still the same person and I still had the same credibility and capabilities. But because of their assumptions of what mental illness was, especially as we work, I wasn't able to do that. Right. So that really impacted my self-esteem. But that was just the beginning. Things just really downward spiraled from there due to the stigma to the point where I was like, I can't be here anymore. And it very unfortunate. I had been there for about five years, uh, again, very successfully. And I loved my job. And it was very, very hard to make the decision to walk away from. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days. All showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. You know, this stuff is so complex, right? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, I think for you and me both, it's like, we know what we're capable of. Mm -hmm. But there's no easy answer. So I'm curious, with your bipolar, you had never had a major depressive episode before this one during the pandemic your whole life? You know, it's strange with my bipolar disorder. So I have 
pretty much lived my entire life in a pretty much bipolar manic episode wow. and not hyper dangerous mm-hmm. that I saw at during the pandemic. But my ability to work all of these jobs <laughs> at one time, <laughs> you know, to write books and do all these things and not sleep. That was my bipolar disorder showing up. But in my early 20s, I did suffer a major depressive episode. I didn't know that's what it was then. I actually had a suicide attempt. Mm. No one knew about it. I actually checked into a hotel, had bought a whole bunch of like over-the-counter medicine and taken them all. And then the next thing I remember, someone banging on the door because my t- it was an hourly rate hotel to show you how skanky it was. But I remember someone <laughs> banging on the door. That's all I could afford then, telling me my hour was up. And I kind of threw up all the pills and that was it. And I just went home and act like it never happened. Wow. I never got treatment. I didn't know what it was. I never shared it with anyone. But since then, though, it has been these ups and downs of mania for mm-hmm. me. And that's where I struggle, is living in a bipolar manic state. I remember reading something that in your manic state during the pandemic, people reached out to you on Facebook and you gave people money. And I thought, yes. oh, man, that is a really cla- yes. kind of classic thing. If right. And again, not me. You know, yeah. I'm very frugal. I'm very budget. And it was Oh, oh, you need this? Oh, here you go. Here you go. Until, I mean, I realized I'd given away like $30,000 to complete strangers. And again, talking to people on Facebook, people I wouldn't even necessarily engage, you know, with. So again, completely out of my character. But again, not knowing that excessive spending and giving, you know, was a clear symptom of being a bipolar manic episode. And and that too had happened 10 years earlier. I didn't know what it was, you know. So I've, I've seen the ups and the downs, but did not know how to identify it. And then when that light bulb would come on and I would come out of it, it was like, oh, that's over now. Well, hmm, wonder what that was. And I was just kind of done with it. I know that's the weird thing, right? Because it can mm-hmm. just end. You know, it's funny because I think a lot of us with bipolar I have a a bipolar 2 diagnosis. I don't know Mm -hmm. about you. Mm -hmm. You know, our hypomania becomes something that we we really use and Mm -hmm. we we really, really can get a lot out of in a weird Mm -hmm. way. (laughs) I've talked to so many people who've had that experience of hypomania when it's not full mania, but when it's sort of like, again, that just I have so much energy, I can work four jobs. Yep, yep. I've definitely experienced that myself. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think back at it, and I think the reason I've embraced it is because I've realized, yeah, all these things I want to accomplish, I probably couldn't (laughs) without. (laughs) And even as we were trying to decide what treatment plan I was going to be on, it was like, hey, you can't numb me too much. Like, I got to be creative. Like, I got to have a little bit of this, you know? And so... um, (laughs) I found out things like lithium's not for me, you know, like it numbed me and I didn't feel myself. So we had to find what that treatment plan was for me so that I could still be me, right? I can still have my personality, still have my creativity, but yet not cross into a, a dangerous, you know, state. And so how do you treat yourself all across the board from meds to diet to everything? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, my life significantly changed because yes, while there are parts of bipolar disorder that I embrace, there are many parts that I don't. And I realize I've got to be able to control that. And so I do take medication every single day. Mm -hmm. I also significantly change what I ate. I was a 
grab and go type person, you know, whatever was convenient. In the past six months or so, I've lost like 60 pounds, you know, just, uh, yeah, just changing, eating living things. And I walk now something I didn't do before. I was very guilty, especially during the pandemic. And as we start to do more things virtual, of just sitting in front of my computer for endless Mm -hmm. hours a day, not seeing sunlight for days at a time. Mm. That was just the normal for me of just not moving. And now I move. I put it like this. I was in Baltimore this weekend for a book signing and ended up walking 10 miles that one day while I was there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So (laughs) I walked like crazy, but I love it, you know, and it helps my mental health. And setting boundaries, I did realize that, you know, being bipolar manic, you know, that generosity, even if it's not as extreme as when I'm, you know, really, really hyper manic, um, but there was still this level of generosity. And so I put up boundaries for people who were taking advantage of that and just really engaging what self-care looks like, which is things like boundaries, which is things like blocking toxicity and things like that. So I have fundamentally changed in a positive way since my diagnosis. I fully embrace it. I don't deny it. I do whatever I can control it. And I have seen very, very positive results. And I don't mean results as in, oh, I got a book out. I got this. Those things (laughs) that I thought, you know, were good. Um, But just how I view life. There are three things that I struggle with when talking about the intersection between work success, and mental health. Uh The first one is very much how to straddle the line between those of us who manage our mental health, take it seriously, find treatments that work. You know, we have learned a lot from our mental health and our mental illness. Uh And like you said, like, I don't want to medicate this part away entirely. I think a lot of us feel that way. We credit, I mean, I credit my anxiety and my intensity with a lot. But I never, ever want to go into the world of toxic positivity and, Mm. you know, making this only about redemption stories Uh and Uh and resiliency and embrace. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So that's tough topic area. Number one is like, how do we balance the reality that this stuff is dangerous? It sucks sometimes. It's awful sometimes. But there is a piece of it that is really instructive and can bring benefit. The second piece is the sort of micro versus macro level. Uh You know, given your background in HR and and DEI and your experience as a Black woman in America, I'm I'm really Uh curious here is like, there is no level of mental health that isn't intersected with systems. Yes. Yes. And so a lot of the mental health discussion is very personal. And I fall prey to this myself, you know, uh-huh. get treatment, learn tools, you can do this. Uh-huh. And maybe that's not true because the systems are so toxic. So those are two struggle areas that I have. And I would love you to take on either or both. Yes. Um, so amen to both. Uh, <laughs> you know, the first is the toxic positivity. And, you know, I always felt like I had to demonstrate that even before my mental health struggle. And then especially after, mm. because I made it this mission that, hey, you can thrive, you know, with mental health condition, you know, and I'm going to show you and the images that you see are false and not reality or not everyone's reality. And then I decided one day, shortly I made that announcement, I was having a really bad day. And I decided to post that too. Mm -hmm. You know, like, hey, this is a bad day. I can't get out of bed. 
et cetera, et cetera. So I made this decision to show both the ups and downs, not necessarily coming from it from a toxic positivity way. There are definitely things that I embrace and enjoy, but there are definitely downsides to it as well, especially as it relates going into your second question into the intersectionality of being a black woman with a Mm -hmm. mental illness that has impacted me in a profound way. And the first way is that mother that I talked about earlier that stood by my side through illnesses and achievements and all these things Mm -hmm. has abandoned me since my mental illness diagnosis. Whoa. I have not spoken to her in two years and in a black community, you don't talk about mental illness. And so That has been one down. Navigating through the system has been a definite challenge. And I advocate for people to form a relationship with a mental health provider before crisis, because if you don't, then sometimes you're just kind of stuck with the person they assign you to. And that's what happened to me. And I was assigned to a non-person of color who I had some cultural challenges with and who had some biases and long story short, ended up calling Child Protective Services and the police on me one day when I told them that I was struggling with my mental health, even though I had a strong black husband present to take care of me and my family. And they did not trust that. (sighs) Right. And then third, the systemic structural barriers. I did a LinkedIn post just last week, you know, saying I can't get a TSA pass because... That blew me away. <laughs> I could not believe that. I didn't yes. know that. Yes. Yes. Because I've been involuntarily admitted. I posted that post from a place of, oh, hey, I'm bringing this to people's attention, right? For awareness. This is what we face, et cetera, et cetera. This is the work I'm working on. This is why. And what was shocking to me were the comments of, well, you get what you deserve. <gasps> or I wouldn't want to ride on a plane with you either. You are a danger. I oh mean, my God. yes, <laughs> yes. And that impacted my mental health like significantly over the weekend. Like the way people view people with a mental health condition is horrible. And I'm like, I'm not homicidal. I was suicidal. And it was one point I'm getting, I tried with pills, not with a gun. They were like, Oh, you can harm me if you're on a plane. I mean, it was really, really bad. And so, you know, it really just solidified, you know, how bad it's still out there. Yeah. We're still, we're having these conversations more and more people are coming forward to say they deal with certain mental health conditions, but not mm-hmm. a lot of people are digging into the ugly truth about it. And when you do, this is the ramifications that you're going to face. So, yeah, you know, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of burden that comes with that. And, you know, I don't know statistically how much it's impacted my business or speaking engagements to be a black person with mental health. I'm not sure. Do I think there's a person or two that's like, no, I'm not going to choose this person because of what they have? Probably so. But, you know, there, there are significant challenges. So when you're already fighting a system that's built against you, in many ways, and then you're adding this to your identity, then, you know, it's continuing to provide more barriers for you. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's interesting because I don't know that I face the same backlash. Mm. And that's interesting to me. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do you ever rethink the work that you do? I do. I mean, even this weekend, I was like, okay, I'm done. Like, I'm going back to like, why am I facing this? I am a accomplished labor attorney lawyer. I have been the head of HR. I have all these other credentials. I don't have to center my work around mental health, right? Yeah, I did. Right. I was able to be accomplished before I can do it after. And so I really reconsidered, you know, like, I'm just going to pivot my work. This is not worth my mental health, et cetera, et cetera. And then I really started to think back to being back in that place where I felt alone. I felt isolated. I didn't know another black woman with these professional credentials who was talking about, you know, being diagnosed with a mental illness. And I just realized it's important for me to keep pushing on. It's important for me to keep fighting. I come from a family of civil rights activists who faced even more challenging things living in in Montgomery, Alabama. So I've got to continue our generational legacy of doing the right thing, even if it means facing these consequences that are uncomfortable. You don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but I'm kind of stuck on your mom. Mm -hmm. Did that come as a shock to you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, this person who... Typically, you know, rushed to my bedside, you know, for anything. And she actually rushed to my bedside when this happened. When I, after my suicide attempt, my husband called and said, Hey, this happened. I need help with, you know, my daughter who was 12 at that time. It was during COVID. So only one person, you know, at a time could come visit Mm -hmm. you. And, and we talked and she was a good listener. I'll say that about some of the things that I thought, you know, were triggering to me. And that was fine. I was used to that. But it was after the point when I started to take steps to address my mental health. Mm -hmm. And those steps led to putting up those barriers. And those barriers meant that things that she was used to getting from me, financially, emotionally, et cetera, et cetera, weren't going to look the same. Mm. And that essentially severed the relationship. I'm really sorry about that. Oh, well, you know, it's part of it. (laughs) You know, I was sad about it at first, but in the end, I've got to look out for me and my mental health. And if that means that certain people are not on this journey with me, I appreciate the part of the journey of my life they were on with me. And I realize that some people have to get dropped off along the way, right? And that's life. How did you learn to create boundaries? Was that a new skill? Very new. (laughs) What was most instructive as you were learning? Oh, gosh. What helped me to learn to create boundaries was how I acted, my behaviors, while I was in a bipolar manic episode. Hmm. So when I'm in that bipolar hypermanic episode, those boundaries just completely don't exist. You know, they are just gone. And so working with my mental health professional, we decided, well, you know what, if you're going to work on, if you're in this situation again, right, not putting those boundaries up or keeping them up, I've got to practice that when I'm not in an episode. So what I've been trying to do is think about the things that I do that I'm not proud of when I'm in a bipolar manic episode and practice ensuring that I'm not engaging in those things when I'm not. And so therefore, practicing those boundaries, I hope, 
you know, if I were to enter an episode again, this is teaching me to be able to put up those boundaries. I'm not sure if it's going to work because uh, you never know, you know, when you're in an episode, you become a completely different person. Yep. But that's kind of my plan. And so I hope it works. If it doesn't work or if I don't go into an episode again, at least I'm just doing work to make my life better. You know, and, and I, I just want to say, you know, to anyone out there who's listening, it could be years before you have an episode uh-huh. again, right? If you're treated, I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not diagnosing, but I'm just saying uh-huh. I've had three major depressive episodes in my uh-huh. life, despite having bipolar two with major depression. Uh-huh. And so... I think it's scary and people think that people who have bipolar, it's like we're changing every day. Yes. <laughs> or throughout the day. <laughs> throughout the day. <laughs> but we're not. We're mm-hmm. not. And there can be a lot of luck and good treatment behind it all. Absolutely. It's funny. We're, we're twins here because my bipolar manic episodes have been every 10 years. I mean, so it's the same. It was in my early 20s after college. And I found that there, for me, there's a theme. So I'm trying to keep my eye out for that. I go into a bipolar manic episode when I'm bored or I feel like I'm not chasing a professional accomplishment. And so my first one was out of high school and college and that transition in high school, I was very active. I was a cheerleader on student council, you know, everything I could get my hands into <laughs> in college. I wasn't, I wasn't popular. I didn't know anybody that triggered my first one. Then my second one was I went from corporate America, I was working for the Fortune One company, had a big role, decided to leave that company, went into manufacturing because I wanted labor union experience, but it was kind of boring for me. It wasn't my cup of tea. I'm not a steel toe wearing type of girl. And so (laughs) that triggered my second one. And then the third one, 10 years later was COVID. So I'm, I'm learning now that pattern. And that's why it's so important for me not to integrate all of my identity into my professional success, because if some reason, I mean, just like the pandemic, we had no idea that was going to happen. If Mm. some reason my profession is taken away from me in some way, I need to value other things in life. And if I don't, then I'm at risk of going into a bipolar manic episode. And then when I reach that manic episode, it gets really bad. And then that triggers the other end when I go to the bipolar depressive episode. Yes. And that's a powerful insight to have and a goal that I think a lot of us are working on to decouple our entire identity from our career and our professional achievements. Yeah, exactly. Especially as women. Especially as women, my my last major depressive episode. I mean, I have I have a lot of different triggers, but mm-hmm. but it was when I lost it was when I lost my business. Mm. Yep, I would be the same way. <laughs> yeah, I totally get you there, mm. Natasha. Thank you so much. You know, for for your story and you know for sharing the vulnerabilities in this work. Thank you. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn. 
where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening.